If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We are in the post-Labor Day rush to Election Day. The political season kicks off in a big way starting this week, and we'll be at a fever pitch probably now for the next eight weeks. One of the first stories we're talking about on Today in Ohio on this Tuesday has to do with the election. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with my colleagues, Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And Laura, you're going to be going first. What's the intriguing idea that Lee Weingart, a candidate for Cuyahoga County Council, proposes to get rid of our confusing array of municipal income taxes while subtly taking a step toward a countywide municipality of greater Cleveland? So he wants to have a flat tax across the county. So this would get rid of all of the different municipal income taxes, which range probably from 1% to 3.5% at this point. And then that would replace that. The county would collect it all and divvy it up to the municipalities based on the distribution from 2019. So this idea would be like you would no longer have to pay a tax where you work and where you live, you would just pay one tax, which that's the big boon for a lot of residents and taxpayers. But the cities wouldn't be hurt if they have a lot of people that are working from home and are losing, like Cleveland, a lot of their income tax base. And obviously, it would just be easier if we were all as one. So this idea started with Eugene Kramer, who Mm -hmm. drafted the charter when we reformed county government a little more than a decade ago. And when Lee Weingart got hold of it, his first kind of direction was, let's set it at 2%. But he's pulled back from that now and is saying, I'll work with the mayors to come up with a percentage. The, the trick here is that you would go from a complicated mess of filing RITA tax forms to basically a postcard because everybody pays the same. But to do that, you have to take advantage of something that's enshrined in the state constitution that allows a county like ours to become a municipality. And to do that, you need two different votes. What are they? So you need a yes vote in the city of Cleveland, the largest city in the the county, and then a yes vote from the rest of the county um, in the suburbs. So overwhelming. It doesn't matter if, you know, which which city would vote against it, just as long as there is a majority of residents in the non-Cleveland suburbs that vote for it. The reason Kramer proposed this and one of the reasons Weingart has grasped it is if you set the formula based on 2019, Cleveland pretty much stays whole because that's when people were still working downtown. Over time, you would have to adjust the formula based on something to make Mm -hmm. it fair. You'd have to incorporate several different kinds of things into this. There's some tax sharing agreements Cleveland has struck with regard to its water department. But but the idea of a countywide municipality, even though all of the individual municipalities still exist, we'd be the 10th biggest city in America under that right. scheme. 
Exactly. 1.3 million people. And that opens up a lot of doors for us. And this was Gene Kramer's big idea back in 2020 that he came up with. And Lee Weingart isn't pushing it as much because I think he doesn't want to deal with the wrath of suburban mayors and, and the misconceptions about it. But this idea that we would be able to get better federal community uh, block grants, um, we would get just more you know, attention as the 10th largest city, we would draw maybe more businesses and more residents and college grads would see us as cooler and all of these things. And we would just feel more cohesive. You wouldn't be like, well, I live in Rocky River. Well, I live in Lakewood. Like you would live in greater Cleveland. Well, when you travel and people ask where you're from, what do you say? You say I'm from Cleveland. Cleveland. Right. <laughs> the, right. the, I hear from a lot of people, and I, I posed some questions with regard to this in a recent column about polling subjects, about a getting rid of the balkanization or Northeast Ohio. And so many people want to do that. We, as an institution, have been exploring this idea for more than two decades now. It came out of the Quiet Crisis Project we did, and then we we really examined regional government through a region divided. Pete Krause has done some more recent stories about it. And there was a lot of... Uh, rejection of that idea back in the day by people who really didn't want Cleveland police patrolling their streets. Cleveland police weren't known as the greatest police in the world. And Cleveland services were pretty abysmal and nobody wanted that in their suburbs. But we got a whole new generation of homeowners now. And the people I've been hearing from are like, man, we ought to explore that because I don't I don't feel an identity to Lynnhurst or South Euclid or Rocky River. I feel an identity to the region the, the, to get there, we would never get there right away, right? You have to take baby steps. This would be the first of what could be a bunch of baby steps. Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked about regionalism with sharing services between the suburbs. I think that's happening at a very small level. But this idea would be, I mean, you can see how appealing it is to people, right, who see that Rita line on their their paychecks and they're like, oh, I just don't want to lose that percentage of my paycheck. And I think that's what Lee is is counting on, Weingart is counting on, and pitching it to people as like getting rid of Rita, which is kind of a misnomer because Rita is not a taxing body. It's just the collection agency. But that's what people see. And I think people are super confused by income taxes in the first place. And there's not very many places, I actually don't know of any other, where you're paying taxes, where you live and where you're from. I'm oh, sorry, and where you work. And don't forget about the messy credits. You know, you get credit up to a certain percentage, but then there's a limit. And it's just like, good Lord, it's difficult to figure out. Well, and you know, consider how many people are having difficulty with the city of Cleveland. Yes. They sent me a ridiculous form saying I didn't submit the proper forms, which is outright lie. So I have to go and send more nonsense to them. The there there are a couple of things we should think about here: the Solons, the Independences, the other municipalities that have built themselves up as employment centers at, at the expense of the bedroom community idea would feel unfair. This is unfair. It's like, hey, we, we, we've done all this work to get employers here. Now we have to share everything. You could start to think about what they do in Minneapolis. They have a property tax sharing plan that when a new business comes into a municipality, they get the first X percentage of the taxes, but the bulk of the extra taxes are spread evenly through the region. It took away a lot of the competition and created a much more regional approach. You could start to talk about doing something like that here, that the Solons get the first 10% of the taxes collected in, from their employers and then spread the rest around. Lots to uh, talk about here. It's a very interesting proposal. 
by Lee to get a conversation started. I we love to see bold ideas. Chris mm-hmm. Ronane had had a lesser but still a bold idea to get payments in lieu of taxes from hospitals. Those are two big ideas that we've seen from the candidates in a county where we're seeing almost no big ideas from the incumbent or the county council. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, this gives us something to talk about as a region, right? Because this would go to the voters. No executive can come in here, get elected and say, unilaterally, we're doing this. It would go to the people. Um, it, it, Lean Word could get this on the ballot even if he doesn't win county executive. It could be a citizen referendum. So I think it's a it's a fantastic proposal to talk about and chew on and you know, where, what do we want to do with this county and where do we want to be and how do we see our future? So we've talked often on this podcast about the new leaders in town, like all of these institutions have new people at their helm. And so I hope they grab this and they start discussing it. Well, and it was nice to see him say, look, I haven't set this in stone because Mm -hmm. if we go there, I really want to collaborate with the mayors and others. I don't want this to just be my idea. I want it to be our idea. Another interesting approach coming for county government. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, Caitlin Durbin did a couple different stories following up on all of the scandal with children in county control getting raped and sex traffic. So do we finally have somebody in Cuyahoga County with some solutions to all the children who have been sleeping in a county building where they've been vulnerable? And why can't the county workers protect those kids by holding on to them in the building? Yeah, this has been a vexing problem for the county for years. Kids who can't live at home and have no options for foster care have been living at the Jane Edna Hunter Social Services Center. Essentially, it's an office building, and many of the kids have been free to come and go as they please, which has led to a lot of problems, including some of them being sexually assaulted or prostituted outside the building. And sometimes the, the older kids have actually taken the younger kids outside the building to be sex trafficked. And it's a really terrible situation. Staffers who have tried to stand in their way have been met with violence from some of the kids. It's, it's all come to a head lately with staff coming to county council meetings to air their grievances about how out of control the environment is for these kids who are living there. But Dave Merriman, the county's director of the count of, of the Department of Health and Human Services, which oversees the Division of Children and Family Services, told Caitlin that the county will be proposing several big changes this month to immediately divert kids from the office building into proper residential care and beef up the staffing to rebuild the, so, the area social services safety net. First, there's there will be a contract with the Centers for Families and Children working in partnership with residential treatment provider Cleveland Christian Home, and they're going to provide eight beds for emergency county placements. But unlike other contracts, the centers are not going to be allowed to reject kids or eject them from from their care. In the past, that has really stood in the way of the county finding housing for some of these kids, especially teens who have had pending charges against them or specialized needs. Also on the horizon are wage increases for the county's DCFS staff that officials say will make county county uh, Cuyahoga County social workers the highest paid in the state. And hopefully that will boost staffing levels to, to reinforce other child protective services. So county council will begin to discuss these measures when they when they get back from their break September 13th. 
And uh, officials are also preparing a backup plan to convert the county-owned Metzen Bomb building into a permanent residential drop-off center for county youth awaiting placement. About 75% of that building is already being used by the juvenile court, but one of the vacant wards could easily be repurposed into a 16-bed residential facility. So that is also a really good option. All right. And, so, uh, so yeah. But she also wrote about a legal opinion from the prosecutor's office explaining why county workers seeing somebody leaving the building, even though they're in county custody, as it were, they can't do anything to keep them there. Yeah, they can't. That is that is the legal opinion of Dave Lambert from the the county uh, uh, the c- county prosecutor's office that it is against the law for the county uh, social workers to restrict them from leaving the building. They uh, they cannot do it. <laughs> you know what bothered me about that opinion though that Dave Lambert is the prosecutor's office civil attorney. If you sue the county, he's the guy that defends the county, and so. Everything he's aiming at is protecting the county from vulnerability to lawsuits. And it just seems very convenient that if a kid in county care leaves and gets raped or harmed in some other way, that could be actionable. You could say the the, the kid or somebody that is taking care of the kid later could sue the county saying, hey, this kid was in your care. And, and now they've got this get out of jail free card. Well, we can't do anything about it. I would have thought that they would have sought this opinion because it's about criminal action and not civil side of things from a criminal side of the prosecutor's office. It just it just rubbed me the wrong way that it was Dave Lambert, the one saying you absolutely can't do it. I I talked previously about how back in the day, Tim McCormick as a county commissioner broke the law on confidentiality to get the word out that kids were being abused, much to the chagrin of his colleagues and people in, in, the, in the child office at the, for the county uh, administration. Uh, and this seems like it's like, well, we can't do anything. Hands, wash your hands. I mean, kids are getting raped. Kids are getting sex trafficked. And so, well, we can't do anything. Kind of suspicious. Yeah, exactly. But but further than that, I mean, they, the opinion actually says that anyone who tries to physically detain them may be subject to criminal prosecution. <laughs> right, right. But, I mean, that's, that's crazy. Right, but that, right, that's the crazy part. They're protecting the kid because they think they're going to get raped or attacked. And he's saying, oh, you, you can't, you can't protect them. <laughs> Just the whole thing doesn't, doesn't quite pass the sniff test. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With the Guardians playing so well, we took the temperature of fans to see whether they are getting excited for October. Lisa, we got to talk about this now because they could drop out of first place with the next game. They have not been on a good roll since we published this story. Right, right. When you sent this, you know, they were doing very well. Now, the Guardians are still in first place, but they're only half a game ahead of the Minnesota Twins. They had a very disappointing homestand over the holiday weekend. They were one in five, although they did win last night against Kansas City at Kansas Kansas City in extra innings, six to five. But, you know, um, our reporters talked to various people in the stands. Uh, um, there's a beer stand vendor, Joey Kleinhens, who's been in that, in you know, he's been slinging suds at uh, Progressive Field forever, and his father and his son both sell beer there. He said that he sold more beer in July and August than any time since 2018. He says he's felt a lot of general excitement over the last two months. However, the attendance does 
doesn't really bear that out. Um, the August attendance uh, was uh, 16,000 average, 896. In June, it was just a little bit lower at 19,600. And then in July, uh, there were, I'm sorry, I think I'm reading my numbers wrong. But anyway, uh, the attendance has been down. And the August season attendance to date has been about, uh, the season long attendance has been 15,571. That's the fourth worst in the major leagues. That's down from an average of 21,465 for the season in 2019. And Forbes is reporting that there's a 30% drop in TV viewing of the Guardians. So, that's, Well, that's because they make it so hard. I heard from a lot of people who want to follow the team but can't watch them on television. Laura's son headed to Pittsburgh to watch a Mets game over the weekend. It got rained out, but but they can't watch the, the Guardians play. And, and if you sign a contract like that as the team to make some extra money and then people can't follow your team, you don't get them into the stands either. I think that's a huge part of it. You know, a lot of people don't have cable anymore. And so, you know, you can watch some recaps on your your Alexa device or something, but you're not following it live all the time. It's just not in the background of your summertime, yeah. you know, routine. Yeah. I heard and- a lot of grousing about ownership decisions, about not you know, not going out and getting a great bat to, to cement this before the trade deadline of the television contract, making it hard for people to yeah. follow. And then there's some whining about why aren't people in the stands? And so, well, you, you've made it more difficult. Well, and there, there, there are several factors to take into account here. I mean, poor attendance, it is down no matter what, uh, from pre-pandemic levels. But that's probably true of all teams. But still, we're the fourth worst in the majors. There's also, we have a very young team. We have no marquee tra- players. We've traded most of them away, although I would argue Jose Ramirez is a marquee player, but they're not considering him that. Also, you got to think of the name change. This is the first year as the Guardians. And there was actually a longtime fan, 51-year-old Ted Delancey of Middleburg Heights. He's been to three dozen games so far this year. He said there's a lot of diehard Indians fans in attendance and he said he went to one game that when it rained they didn't call the game off but when it rained the only fans left behind were wearing indians gear so it's probably going to take a while for everyone to fully embrace that name change yeah it was a lot of people still don't believe they should have changed the name we hear that quite a bit okay well let's hope they get back to that four game lead so that we do have an exciting october to think about it's today in ohio Who was the woman charged with convincing people to move to Northeast Ohio for a new group aimed at boosting the region's population after decades of stagnation? Laura, this is this is an interesting move. We haven't really focused on this as a region. Maybe it'll work. Yeah, I think it's a really cool job. And she sounds like a fantastic person. It's Sarah Gracious. She's a Bay Village native. She left Cleveland in 2011 for college, moved to New York City after graduation and boomeranged back. Now she's the first director of the Cleveland Talent Alliance. This is a coalition of Northeast Ohio organizations. They're working to boost the population and they have set the goal of becoming one of the fastest growing, most diverse, inclusive and welcoming communities in the Midwest by 2030. And they're counting Cuyahoga Lake 
Lake Geauga, Lorraine, and Medina counties. That's the U.S. Census area for Cleveland. So obviously we've had pretty stagnant population growth. Compare that especially to peers like Columbus, which is seeing a whole lot more. So they basically want to work with the organizations we have and the institutions, the universities, the healthcare industry, manufacturing, economic development, work together, not just to come up with a catchy marketing slogan, or campaign, but really help new residents navigate all the steps to becoming residents to decide this is where I want to be. I wonder how they deal with the issue of Jim Jordan and the fact that our legislature is basically kind of the overlords of Ohio. We're going to have an absolute ban on abortion, even though the voters don't agree with that. And we had wicked gerrymandering that the voters tried to end, but the people in power enforced it and kept it in there. So if I'm a young person looking to move to a state and I do any kind of Googling on what's going on in that state, I see Jim Jordan, the poster child for all that's wrong in government. And I find these stories about how we have a government for the state that's not responsive to the voters. Why would they want to move here? How do you overcome that? That is a really good point. And I think they're that would be a really interesting question to pose to her. But I would come back with this New York Times op-ed I read that said, all you people that live in New York and California and you say you want to change the country, you need to move to the red states. You need to move to the south, actually. It was it was a, mm-hmm. uh, saying that you need to go to the south. But I would say the same thing. If you want to make meaningful change, move to a state where we could use that that new perspective. And the quality of living is great. And the, the cost of living is fantastic. I mean, I did the same thing. We both went to Miami. I moved around the Midwest a little bit, went to New York for graduate school, lived in New Jersey. And by that point was like, please, please, I need to come home and got the job at the Plain Dealer, which was a dream for me. And I'm never, ever leaving, right? Like, I don't think Cleveland is the most exciting place to visit. No, you know, no looking down on our tourism bureau, but I think it's a fantastic place to live. All right. But I'm I'm the other one. Right. I, I was in Florida for nine years. Mm-hmm. I had kids who were six and nine. Florida is a terrible place to raise children. It's very transient. and It's too hot to play outside in the summer. We were looking for a place to, to raise children, visited Cleveland, fell in love with the place. The state was a good middle centrist state of common good sense with the George Voinoviches of the world. If I were making that decision today, I bet I would not come here. I bet. And I've been here 26 years. I am kind of the person they want, the person that comes from out of state and likes it and makes a home here. But our, what's happened in Ohio is so upside down that I think I would look elsewhere today and not come here, which is interesting if you're Intel and you're about to recruit all sorts of right. people to come work here. I mean, I think it's a really interesting discussion to have. And obviously, we've we tried to tackle this in our newsroom. We had a whole series on what if Northeast Ohio broke away from the rest of the state, right? Because our views are so different from the rest of the state. So you could say, hey, we've got our, our little reasonable corner of the state. But yeah, it's it's tough when, I mean, I don't know how many young people are looking into who's the leadership in the state they legislature know, where they move somewhere. But yeah, Everybo- no, the abortion thing, the gerrymandering, it's it's bad news. And everybody knows Jim Jordan. I mean, no, nobody wants to be represented by Jim Jordan, at least not in their right mind. But he's everybody knows who he is because he's such a cartoon character in his Trump fealty and, and J.D. Vance, if he were elected senator. I don't think people want to be 
represented by J.D. Vance. We'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What did reporter Olivia Mitchell learn as she accompanied a couple of city council members, one new and one a longtime veteran, as they went door to door to talk to constituents? Layla, I thought it was interesting that um, the new councilwoman who recently complained about doing too much constituent service was out (laughs) knocking on doors to find out about constituent service. I thought that was interesting, too, but I I think she probably... uh, found a way to, for all the information she gathered to kind of reinforce her position, don't you think? That, yeah, that I it's mean, a broken system what, and that, well, and what that struck me is doing enough to help these people. A councilwoman is not responsible for the city's mosquito problem. The mayor's office really needs to right. be addressing that and she should not have to do that. But, but talk about what we saw. It was yeah, Olivia Mitchell's so- story. It was really well done. Yeah, it was. Olivia walked the wards with City Councilman Kevin Conwell, who, as you said, Chris, has been has been on council since 2001, and, and Councilwoman Rebecca Moore, who's serving her first term. And, and Olivia saw how, in, in Conwell's words, staying connected to residents really leads to better policy. And, and the council members got this firsthand look at the issues that are troubling their neighbors, neighbors, ranging from the scourge of mosquitoes in one case to a rash of catalytic converter thefts that have hindered uh, uh, the delivery of meals to senior citizens. And they met with residents about basic city services like slow garbage pickup and abandoned homes or burned out streetlights. And the council members had a chance to resolve issues like nuisance complaints in a more diplomatic, friendly, face-to-face manner than through city hall channels. And they learned that in some cases, residents didn't realize necessarily that their overgrown lawns were in violation of city ordinance. So it was nice for them to actually have those conversations. And and sometimes residents' needs were more heartbreaking, stemming from police violence. And so Conwell, for example, along with a few police uh, officers, drove the streets to listen to residents and business owners. And he also went to see the mother of Devontae Johnson, a 16-year-old who was shot to death on August 17th and uh, on East 113th Street. And and he has helped raise money for um, the family of uh, of Aubriana Jackson, who was shot to death while lying in uh, in her bed on Columbia Columbia Avenue. So it's that kind of humanity that I think has endeared Conwell specifically to his constituents all these years. And so uh, Olivia just did a great job of of bringing home that that sense and sense you know that that these council members are trying to cultivate in their wards. Um, but it was very interesting. I thought that Rebecca Moore was out there pounding the pavement <laughs> after being so insistent about uh, the fact that a lot of their complaints should be funneled upward. <laughs> well, I, I, it, it, on the surface, it looks like a conflict, right, in what she said before and what she said now. But it's really not. She, her argument was, I get a lot of calls for basic stuff, dented trash cans and things that the mayor's administration really should be handling. It shouldn't take a council person's intervention to get something fixed. We did hear, though, from some people who work within City Hall. It said, hey, if a resident calls us, it gets this priority level. But if the council person calls on behalf of the resident, it goes way up on the priority level. That's a broken system. It shouldn't take me getting Rebecca Marr to make the phone call for me to get an answer that they should do a better job. On the other hand, this is not like the councils of most of the suburban governments that really act as the board of directors. Cleveland City Council was designed as a council of constituent service. There used to be 33 of them back when the population was higher, that they are the, the link 
to City Hall when you have difficulties. Uh, and by knocking on doors, I think they perpetuate that. Yeah, I think that's true. In fact, you know, we had uh, been talking uh, about doing a follow on Rebecca Moore's, um, you know, I think we might still we might still do that just about how the history of the way that this system was set up in Cleveland as a as a constituent services body and how the culture of city council was developed that way and and that quite a few of the council members kind of depend on that those constituent services for re-election because if they didn't have that what would they hang their hat on when it comes time for election season they they some of the council members aren't necessarily cranking out legislation right that's not what they're known for they're known for being the ones who deliver on services they're the ones who uh certainly are you know they'll pick they'll answer the phone when you call so they have to be responsive they can't just suddenly change the system so that you know city city hall is is answering those calls they want to be the ones who are responding to to their constituents and, and uh, i think they would push back against a system change well and really in those jobs you've got to love press in the flesh and blaine griffin i see him on social media he is at one or two or three places every day he's always out with people. I mean, we talk about the connected council people. They're the ones that are constantly talking to the residents and that's how they know what is on their minds. And then for the council people that don't do that, and we've had more than a few over the years, they don't generally last because they're yeah. not out doing what this is about. So that's why I like this story is because it showed the connection in a way we haven't seen before by going out and pressing the flesh ourselves. So it's good yeah. stuff by Olivia Mitchell. Let's squeeze in one more on Today in Ohio. How, per, how are proponents of legal abortions changing their legal strategy to end Ohio's heartbeat bill? Lisa, they want to close down their first avenue and go in a new direction. Yeah, uh, several Ohio abortion providers filed suit Friday in Hamilton County Common Pleas Court because they're hoping for a faster decision than the Ohio Supreme Court on the ruling on the state fetal heartbeat law. So this new suit, and they're being repped by the ACLU, this new suit is seeking a temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction to prevent enforcement of the heartbeat bill until the Ohio Supreme Court makes its decision on whether the Ohio Constitution Constitution protects abortion rights through its uh, individual freedoms clause or individual liberties protection. So we'll see if they get that quicker answer. But ACLU Ohio Legal Director Frieda Levinson says that we filed in Ohio Supreme Court two months ago. Things were horrible then. They've only gotten worse. We've had clinics in Kentucky and Indiana shutting down as bans are enacted. Kentucky has an abortion ban that went in effect in August. Indiana, where that 10-year-old girl went to get to an abortion, will ban abortion starting on September 15th. So as the Supreme Court dithers, the options are shrinking for pregnant women. Yeah, although part of me wonders whether this is worth the effort, because we know from the leadership in the legislature, they're planning an outright ban. And the only way to overcome that, because the majority of Ohioans completely disagree with it, is to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot. And I wonder whether all this effort being invested in the courts for these 
possibly temporary wins are worth it because in a couple of months, we're going to have a total ban on, on the books and they're going to have to start the whole legal process over. But I do think that, you know, looking at the individual liberties protection, I think they have a, a legal in there. You know, this new complaint focuses not on the bill, not on the heartbeat law itself, but the constitutionality of it. So maybe that argument will be a stronger one in Hamilton County. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. It's today in Ohio. That does it for the Tuesday discussion. We had a lot of stories left on the list. We'll have to get to them later as the week progresses. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for listening to this podcast. <laughs>